Eye on 2020, episode 281. Have 2020 Vision with Ion 2020, your source for the news and events in the lead up to the 2020 presidential election. I am Ray Eaton, and I will keep you up to date daily until November 2020 with a libertarian perspective on the candidates and their policies along with the news. Thank you for joining me. Now let's clear our vision. What's up, everybody? Happy Thursday to you. This is Ray Eaton, host of Ion 2020, and appreciate you joining me. Uh, the coronavirus is all the talk, all the rave, everything that's going on in the 2020 election. But I don't really, I I will talk a little bit about the coronavirus per se today, but I think I'm going to talk a little bit more about like the economics of it and things of that nature. And the reason why is because there are a lot of things that are going on, especially with your politicians up in Washington who are deciding that they're going to reward companies for bad behavior in some ways, or, you know, the idea behind moral hazard is kind of what I want to talk about today. So let me, that, that's me the first topic of the day is moral hazard. Um, yes, the coronavirus is pretty darn dangerous, right? If you get it, if you're somebody that gets it and you're of a higher risk group, if you have a compromised immune system, if you're over about 65 or so, even over 55 in some ways, uh, but it's mostly from what I've seen, like 95% of the deaths or something like that are people that are over the age of about 55 years old. And the vast majority of those, 95% of those people are probably over the age of what, 65 or 70. So the vast majority of deaths are people that are much older than than myself, but in a, that's a high-risk group. And a lot of those deaths, because I look at it daily, I'm looking at these different trackers and stuff, and I'm looking at the death toll that comes in in South Carolina specifically, and the vast majority of those deaths are people that have some sort of pre-existing condition in the first place. Uh, And a lot of the people that die that are under the age of 55, like if it's a middle-aged person and that person dies, most likely they had some sort of underlying condition as well, especially like if you have COPD, if you're a heavy smoker, if you're somebody that has lung and lung problems already, then yes, this is a deadly, deadly virus and that you need to take precaution in your daily life to stay away from people that have it. I do not deny that fact. Like they, I've been looking at different news articles about the actual impact on a person's body of the coronavirus and yes like they were saying in one thing like the pneumonia that comes up from having the coronavirus isn't like a normal pneumonia where your the sacs in your lungs fill up with fluid they get coated by something so you don't really feel like you have the hard trouble breathing until the very end so a lot of people they go they get the coronavirus and they have the fever and they have the they have respiratory symptoms but they don't have really heavy symptoms of it so they don't go to the doctor for a while and then all of a sudden they get to the doctor and their their oxygen levels are really low like 50 60 to 50 uh, percent oxygen levels and so forth and at that point the doctors have to put them on a respirator because of that and respirators are the last thing that you want to do to somebody but uh, those are the things that they're trying to do to save the people. So there are people in that situation. Somebody that is under the age of 55, most likely their lungs are not going to have 
that much of a problem from my understanding, but over the age of 55, those are the people that really have to worry about it. Or if you have somebody like that has, um, has some type of underlying condition already, especially like asthma or something, because people with asthma can already have scarred lung tissues in the first place if they have very bad asthma. So take that into account. I mean, I'm, I'm not downplaying the risks of the coronavirus. Um, if you look at the numbers, it's killed a lot of people in America. Whether you think that the numbers are skewed, let's say you think that they're overestimated by 10%, well, you're still looking at close to 40,000 deaths right now. As we speak on, you know, I'm recording this on Wednesday evening. Uh, so as we speak, there's a little, if you think that it's skewed by 10% or even 20%, you're still looking at over 30,000 deaths, 35,000 deaths at that point, right? So that's quite a few deaths. If you think that the numbers have been underestimated, that's probably true. You probably, I mean, if, if you're only counting the people that have tested positive, well, most people that get it, 70% and some, some people say that get it don't have any symptoms whatsoever, so they don't go and get tested in the first place. And most people, especially if you're under 55, are not going to be going to get tested anyway because it's not really that necessary for you to go get tested because you're not in a high-risk category. So the doctors will just say, stay home, get some rest, drink some fluids, and if you get worse, then come give me a call. But that's the... the if you feel like this is overplayed, that probably is true in some ways. But then again, there are a lot of deaths, and if you're in a high-risk group, it's definitely important for you to take care of yourself. Don't downplay it in that way. My biggest concern is the way that the politicians are using this crisis to their advantage. The way that the politicians are exploiting this crisis so that they can spend as much money as they could possibly spend. Get as many bills passed as they could possibly get passed. Change the rules in Congress where you don't even have to come and vote anymore. They could just pass stuff. If Nancy Pelosi's there, she could pass it with unanimous consent, without having anybody there. Because there's no one there to dissent. That was the whole thing with Thomas Massey a couple weeks ago, where he went there and dissented because, and, and called for a quorum because they wanted to pass it without a quorum. They wanted to pass this bill, $2 trillion in spending without a quorum. Like, the politicians are using this to their advantage to get things that they could never get in the past they are and then on top of that you have the state governors who so the federal government has guidelines and principles that are guidelines that they're saying that the state should follow and that people should follow those are the guidelines that are coming from the cdc that's about the limit of the president's authority on this particular issue is to give guidelines. But then the states are initiating these guidelines. The states are taking way too much power away from the people, way too much authority to arrest people, to fine people thousands of dollars, to do things that are unconstitutional, restricting people's freedom of speech, restricting people's freedom of movement, restricting people's freedom to assemble restricting people's freedom of religion 
restricting people's Fourth Amendment rights, Fifth Amendment rights, Second Amendment rights in a lot of cases. Like, these are things that we have fought for as Americans, that we have enjoyed as Americans, and the politicians have always tried to trample on those rights. The political leaders have always tried to figure out ways to take a, take those rights away in some in, as much as they possibly can because they don't like dissenting voices. So if you don't like a dissenting voice, what do you do? You shut that voice up through the power of the government. But you can't do that in America because we have freedom of speech, right? But they've done everything that they can. They've 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 worked in every gray area that they could possibly do it in order to get their way. That's what the politicians have done throughout history. I had someone say to me the other day, "Oh yeah, well, you know, this isn't that bad and I'm 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 okay with having my freedom restricted in some ways." And it's not that bad of a it's not that big of a deal. And I said, "Yeah, that's what every single dictator throughout history has hoped for is that the people would just shut up and not speak out, right?" Every dictator throughout history proves that, like, okay, so this is what the person said to me specifically. They said that um, it's in the politician's best interests. So I'm not going to dissent because it's in the politician's best interests to have an open economy and freedom and freedom of speech. It's in the politician's best interest. They want it. And I said, yeah, that's what. Every dictator in, a, in the world ever will prove that that's false. Political leaders care about power. They care about having authority. They care about getting reelected. Dictators care about themselves. They don't care about the freedom of movement of the people. They don't. They don't care about the freedom of speech of the people. They care less about that stuff. That's stuff that the people have to protect through litigation, through holding their leaders accountable. Their political, I hate to call them leaders, but holding those people accountable. Getting groups of people to not, you know, like having protests against those leaders if they start doing things that are outside the Constitution. Like, those are the things that protect those liberties and fighting if we have to in the courts of law. Yeah, we're not going to go pull guns on our federal government or our city governments or our state governments. We're not going to go down there and, you know, start a war or start a coup or anything like that. Because we have ways to fight it in the courts, there are ways to make it happen. And that's what we need to do is protect those liberties because every dictator in the world will show that political people do not care about liberty. They don't. They don't care about freedoms. They, they could care less. Even in America where we respect those things and most of the people that are up there that are elected, you hope to God that they have some respect for the Constitution and the constitutional rights and your civil rights, your civil liberties. You hope to God that they care a little bit about it a little bit. But when times like this happen, you can see who really cares about it and don't. You can see that where people's moral compass is at, where their political compass is at. The person and the governor in Michigan 
who can care less about your civil liberties and is using the government as a boot of force against people. And in most states, it seems the same way. They could care less about your civil liberties. They can care less about it. So what are they doing? What are they doing? What are the political leaders doing? What are the people in Congress doing right now? One of the things that I heard Nancy Pelosi say is that she wants to figure out a way to pass a rule in the House where all of the House of Representatives, all the Congress people in the House of Representatives can vote by proxy. Think about that for a minute. Voting by proxy, you think to yourself, well, you know, you don't want them traveling, so that's a good thing. But do you want a situation where your representative in in Congress for your particular area, yes, not representative of of your voice, I agree. These people are representing hundreds of thousands of people. Most likely, they don't give a crap about you or anybody there. They're just there for the power. 99.99% of them. Maybe Thomas Massey can be an exception. Maybe a few others can be an exception. But these people are in situations where they want to be able to have a... or They're trying to pass this law where you can vote for... You can have a proxy vote for you in Congress. If that was the standard, you would never see Congress meet and have your congressman stand there at that podium unless they were trying to give a stump speech they would not go to congress and vote because they would be out doing what they do and that's trying to get reelected i mean having to go to congress to vote on things that's a burden to them to get reelected they have to go there and spend weeks or two weeks or three weeks there no they're going to be meeting with every single lobbyist that they possibly can trying to drum up money They're going to be meeting with every single special interest group that they possibly can to try to drum up support. That would be their full-time job 24-7 to protect their seat in Congress. I mean, the election years, that's what they do most of the time anyway, but at least there's one year. And you know what? That could be a good thing in some ways, but also it can't be a good thing in some ways because... If it was a proxy, then all they got to do is call and say, yeah, vote for this, duh. And they could get so many laws passed because it would be no inconvenience to them to just have some person that's hired as their proxy that's there 24-7, that that's all they do. So actually, it would be a terrible thing because you'd have all kinds of laws being passed constantly. The busybodiness that would go up a 1,000% because at least about a half of their time, three-quarters of their time is spent trying to get campaign donations. So that's a good thing. It's a good thing that they have to go to Congress and vote. But that's one of the things that Nancy Pelosi is trying to float out there right now. And they're going to try to pass it the same way they did with that other stuff as well. Voice vote. Pass it with unanimous consent. That's the power they're trying to take away. The power they're trying to take away. Another one is and this is goes to crony capitalism and bailouts that are happening right now and just corporate welfare as a whole. If you look at the oil market right now, it's tanking. The value of a barrel of oil went down to negative $40 a barrel. This is barrels of oil that are going to be delivered in March or in May, sorry. 
May delivery barrels of oil. And people, it was getting to that point where there was the final day of trading on the May barrels of oil that are going to be delivered, and there's no place to put the oil. They've pumped to capacity. And the fact of the matter is, is the entire world shut down, so the demand for oil has plummeted. In May delivery, there's no place to put it. So everyone's trying to get rid of their oil futures as fast as they possibly can. Whoever gets stuck with the oil in the end loses. So it went down to $10. It went down to $8. It went down to $1 for for a barrel of oil. And then all of a sudden it goes from there down to negative 40. The people that were holding the futures that paid $40, $50 a barrel for those futures are paying people $40 to get rid of that future because they do not want to take delivery of that oil because there's nowhere to put it. It would be as if somebody came to your house with all the that, that it's that I mean that that's exactly how it works in the futures market. You're the person that holds the paper for that delivery. And somebody is going to deliver that oil to that. Let's say you said deliver that oil to my house. A thousand barrels of oil, deliver it to my house. You're holding that paper, but you're speculating. You're assuming that it's gonna go up. So then you sell it to somebody else. You bought it for forty five, you sell it to someone for forty six. Well, the last person holding it has to take delivery and there's nowhere to put it. So you can't say, okay, I'm going to take delivery of this oil and then I'm just going to have them deliver it to a tank yard or something like that where they store the oil at. Because there's nowhere to put it. So you're getting those thousand barrels of oil delivered to your house to sit on your front porch. Basically, there's nowhere to put it. So you better empty out your pool and get ready to have it filled up is what it comes down to. There's nowhere to put the oil. So what are the politicians doing? They want to prop up the oil industry. The government is floating the idea of paying the oil producers in America that produce 12 million barrels of oil per day. They pump 12 million barrels of oil per day. And the government is talking about paying them not to produce that oil. Not to pump that oil. Don't produce 12. We'll just pay you the difference. It's called moral hazard, guys. People invested their money. Businesses invest their money as a speculation. The idea is that we are assuming the risk when we build this, when we drill this hole, when we drill for oil, we're assuming the risk that the cost of that is going to be, there's going to be a profit involved. If it costs me a million dollars to drill that hole, I expect to make a specific return from that hole. If it costs $50 per barrel to pump it out of the ground and oil's at $60 a barrel, that's great. I'm making $10 a barrel profit every single time I pump a barrel of oil. But if it goes down to $49 a barrel, it doesn't make sense for me to pump it. So I stop pumping. But the politicians, they don't understand that. They don't understand. They, they say, oh, well, it's going to kill jobs in America. Look at all the shale oil producers up in North Dakota and Pennsylvania and elsewhere in Colorado that are producing oil. 
and we need to keep them open. We need to keep these jobs. So that's what the politicians are thinking, not realizing that these companies that are pumping shit or buying share or not buying, but pumping shale oil out of the ground. It's a very expensive way to do business. And they need to have, they, they assume that there's going to be shutdowns every so often. In this case, there's going to be shutdowns for a lot longer. And the, but these companies are over leveraged. They took out millions upon millions upon millions of dollars of loans in order to build these rigs, in order to build these places up in North Dakota to pump the oil. Millions upon millions of dollars of loans. These companies have always had problems because they know that the cost of oil, the, 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 the price of oil goes down every so often. So every time the price of oil goes down below 50 down to 30 and $20 a barrel, they have a problem. They do it every single time. And they're always begging for corporate welfare to bail them out. Maybe it's time for these companies to go bankrupt. Bankruptcy is a good thing. Bankruptcy is a tool and a mechanism used to consolidate things when there's bad when bad debt happens. It's a way to liquidate assets. So if this company that runs, let's say they have, I don't know, let's say they have a thousand plate, a thousand, um, a thousand of the pumping stations. What do they call? Them? I can't remember what they call them. I'm trying to think off the top of my head right now. But let's say they have a thousand wells, a thousand wells that they pump out of in North Dakota doing these shale. And it's not profitable for them, and they get into a situation where they have to declare bankruptcy. All that happens in that situation is that some other company comes in there and buys it at a discount. So let's say those thousand wells are worth a billion dollars. Or they have a billion dollars leveraged to make those wells. And they go through bankruptcy, all of a sudden somebody else might come in and bid it for $500 million. And all of a sudden, now it's a profitable endeavor. Now it goes from $50 a barrel, it costs them $25 a barrel. Or $30 a barrel because of the debt and the way that it works. Bankruptcy is a good thing. Bankruptcy is a, a mechanism that's used in order to liquidate assets. But politicians think bankruptcy... I mean, it sounds like a terrible thing. And they don't understand that that's how you limit moral hazard. If you keep propping these companies up, they continue to have bad behavior. They continue to do the wrong thing, which is take up more debt, build more wells at too costly of a amount. You need that liquidation. But the politicians, they want to bail them out. That's all that is, is corporate welfare. And that is just one of the many moral hazards that we're seeing. I mean, imagine the number of businesses that should be going that, that should be closing up shop that are getting a small bailout in some ways by the federal government right now through this payroll protection plan and this $10,000 so-called grant and stuff that they're issuing to these businesses, right? Like, you could imagine that really crappy run businesses are able to get this thing because it's very easy to get it. There's no underwriting process to get it. And underwriting means that there's no process in place to see if it's even a legitimate business to to give the money to if they're if they're even making a profit it's very important in that way to like in the lending world you have to underwrite things you have to see if that is a 
you know, a good investment of the money, but there's no underwriting. So underwriting process in this with this whole PPE thing. So imagine the number of businesses that are getting corporate welfare right now and business welfare right now. There are small businesses. Yes, that's true. And we worship the small business in America and we say it's the, you know, the backbone of the country and all that. But small businesses go out in and out of business all the time. How many of those are we propping up? It's amazing, right? Absolutely amazing. And then from a corporate standpoint, from the large business standpoint, there's all kinds of moral hazard going on there as well with businesses that are being bailed out right now. I mean, it happened with the banks in 2008 and 2007, 2008. It happened in real estate. The moral hazard in real estate is outrageous too. When you have the Federal Reserve buying up mortgage-backed securities and everything, it lowers the standards that a normal person would have or a normal business would have in lending to those business or lending to people for a mortgage. So you're getting zero dollar, zero down payment loans. You get all this stuff that's total moral hazard. It ends up blowing up in their face. It ends up causing bubbles. It ends up making the boom bust cycle happen even worse. Read a little bit about the boom bust cycle if you want to. It's a Austrian economic term pretty much. But it, it encourages the boom-bust cycle. And that's what's going to happen in the oil and gas industry. That'll happen in all the industries. They're being propped up by the federal government's bailout. $2 trillion. Now it's $2.5 trillion. Plus, the Federal Reserve is, is able to leverage, I think it's a $500, million, or $500 billion up to make it so it's $5 trillion that they could leverage in new loans absolutely crazy absolutely crazy economic times we live in and I don't know what the end result is going to be of this I don't I am not a fortune teller I'm not a future I'm not someone that understands the future of how all this stuff is going to play out it could lead to rampant inflation it can lead to rampant deflation it can lead to just just inconsistency in your you know in the food supply it can lead to malinvestment elsewhere it could lead to all all kinds of different things but how does that affect your pocketbook a consistent value in the money is key to understanding if you could save or not if you've saved in your 401k or in your ira and that's in bonds that's a terrible place for it to be right now because the bond markets are blowing up if it, if you're invested in securities or assets or whatever then or assets, if you're invested in like businesses, it's a bad place for it to be right now. If you're invested in gold, I mean, even gold's doing bad. If you're invested in oil, even worse, you know? Like there's no, there's no way to predict the future right now. It's so uncertain and markets don't like uncertainty. So does that lead to the your 401k or IRA, you know, tanking over the next several months. I don't know. I wish I could predict all that stuff, but it's interesting to see what'll happen, you know? It really is. It's interesting to see what'll happen. I mean, only the future can tell what's going to happen. Only time will tell. But I'm I get a little bit nervous about that stuff. I really do. I really do. So, in a little bit more news that I wanted to talk to you guys about, uh reading a CNN 
article and it's just interesting that the first part and I made I, I highlighted it and I was like yeah I just need to I need to bring that up during the uh, next show so it says August the it says August may bring more U.S. coronavirus de- virus deaths than expected but next wave in winter could be worse and then it says a leading U.S. model has upped its project- projected coronavirus death toll by or by August of 60 to 66,000. So a leading U.S. model has upped its projected coronavirus death toll by August to 66,000, a 10% increase from the previous prediction. And if you look at the prediction models that they have, there's one website that specifically does it, and you see all the graphs on, I think, your Facebook page, I'm sure. And they were originally saying, you know, a couple hundred, like two or 300,000, then it dropped down to 100,000, then it dropped down to... Uh, 80,000, and it dropped down to 60,000, and it went back up to 66,000, and it went back down to 60,000. Now it's back up to 66,000 again, right? So they're kind of all over the place, but they're just taking in different numbers, and they're adding different numbers in here, different numbers there. I wasn't sure how they were doing it, but now I understand whenever they redo the model, they're really just adding new numbers in and indicators in and so forth, and that's how they're getting the numbers. So that's why it's all over the board, but they drastically over... Per, overestimated with that 200,000 number way back when. And that freaked everybody out. I mean, that 2.2 million deaths and blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden, 200,000 deaths and everyone's freaking out. Now we're at 66,000 deaths. And it's interesting the way, I mean, the way that it keeps going down and so forth. Now, these are predictions. These are models that they're using. So things are going to change with new new information and new new numbers. And that's fine. And we are on track, I think. I mean, I think there's like 45,000 deaths right now. And like I said earlier, you might think it's, you know, way over, way over um, estimated. So maybe it's overestimated by 20%. Well, that's still 35,000 deaths. 37,000 deaths, something like that. So it's still a lot of freaking deaths. But then it says, this is what it says right here, the next paragraph. The change, so that 66,000 number going up by 10% from 60,000 to 66,000, the change came as states began updating their death tallies, adding residents of nursing homes whom officials are now counting as presumptive positives. So every, uh, I don't know if this is true, but it, it alludes to that, that every death that happens in a nursing home is being counted as a presumptive positive. Yes, that, my friends, will overinflate that number. Because how many people die in a nursing home every single day, no matter what, every every day, you know? I mean, I would imagine most old people that die of old age die in a nursing home, right? I wouldn't say every single one of them, let's say 70% do. So are we going to assume every old person, every retiree that dies in a nursing home is going to be a presumptive case? Well, that's what it seems like they're alluding to right there. So that's going to spike the number up. That definitely will spike the number up. And that is where you get people like me and you get other people that are skeptical of these numbers. Yes, the coronavirus is a terrible thing. Yes, it kills a lot of people. Yes, it's very damaging to people's lungs. Yes, you should protect yourself. You should Stay six feet away from people. You should respect other people's space. I don't know that you need to go as far as never working again or all that, but maybe if you can work from home, do it. 
But if you're at work, stay away from other people, respect their space, wear a mask if you want to, protect yourself, take your own responsibility. But these are the numbers that get people skeptical. These are the numbers that get people waving their flags out there, don't tread on me, and have these people rallying and stuff like that that are not even taking any precaution because in their minds they think it's all fake because the numbers seem like they might be fake a lot of times. Or in their mind, they think it's fake because if you lied to me once, you're probably lying to me again. That's the thought that people have. It really is. We're going to have a spike in the fall? Most likely we would. Let's say November, December, we have a spike in the fall. It'll go coincide with cold and flu season. That'll be bad. But there are indications that, you know, 5, 10, 15% of people already have had it maybe 2%, 3%, however many it is, that continues to go up. So that might help with some some amount of herd immunity in some ways. But we'll see. Only time can tell, guys, and it's really frustrating that just the way that the media portrays it and the way that things are being going down with our country right now, it just scares me. Just the way that the politicians are approaching it mostly. I don't care about the media hyping it up. They probably should hype it up a little bit in some way, only because if you hype it up, it might get people wearing their masks. It might get people taking extra precaution. So hype it up a little bit. Yeah, that's fine. But the problem that I have is the dang politicians who continue to take advantage of a crisis. And that is the 100% the biggest problem that I have. And you guys have known that. I was terrified of this thing at first. I remember freaking out over this thing at first. If you listen to an episode, the first coronavirus episode that I did, I was terrified. I really was. Because I was buying into the media hype. And then I realized it's just an issue of whether we have the capacity or not in the America, in America, in the hospital system. And then I thought to myself, well, if we don't have the capacity, they can always increase the capacity slightly. But it turned out that we don't even need the capacity. Because in South Carolina, they're predicting the need for two or 300 beds when we have 4,700 available beds in in the state. There's 11,000 hospital beds in the state of South Carolina. 57% of them are being used. The other day was 54% are being used. And you have a need for 250 of them in the state of South Carolina for coronavirus patients. That's not a capacity issue in the state of South Carolina. So if the issue was capacity, 100% of the issue was the capacity in South Carolina, we shouldn't have shut down the state of South Carolina. Because they didn't need it. If the issue in South Carolina, or if the issue in North Carolina, same thing, because I've looked at their numbers was capacity they had the capacity new york did not have the capacity it's a capacity issues issue there but that's been my that's been my motto from the very beginning guys is the overreaction now that's been that's the overreaction by not just the public the public can be overreacting that's fine but when it comes down to the government overreacting that's where it causes lives to be lost that's causes lives to be you know put on hold that causes people to be arrested that causes people to be fined that causes people to lose their livelihoods and that's the problem that i have
If you want to overreact and stay home and lock yourself in your house and do all that stuff, that's fine. That's your decision. And if you want to go out there and go to the grocery store and hang out with your buddies, that's your decision as well. It really is. Most people are not doing that, though. Most people are taking it pretty serious. Anyway, guys, that's all I got for you. I've gone way too long today. I apologize. But um, you know what? If I keep on talking, I keep on talking. And that's something that I often do. So I uh, appreciate you joining me, though. This is Ion2020, your source for the libertarian look at the 2020 presidential election. And I will get to some election coverage at some point, I promise you guys. But for the meantime, I will cover the coronavirus epidemic as well from a libertarian perspective. So enjoy uh, go ahead and follow me, IonTheEmpire.com, IonTheEmpire on Facebook and on Twitter as well. If you type those in, you'll find it. And then you can also email me, Ray at IonTheEmpire.com. If you love the show and you've been listening for a while, give me a five-star rating review. And then come on back Monday so you can have clear vision for 2020.